Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lean Whiskey. It is episode 28. I'm Mark Graben. We're joined today by Jamie Flinchball. Glad to be with you, Mark. Good to see you again, Jamie. Representing for those who aren't watching on YouTube, Jamie's got his MIT letters on. So, yep, just happened to be the t shirt on the top of the pile this morning. So, uh, so that's what that's what you get today. I don't, I don't always plan ahead for my lean whiskeys, but, um, Except, except our topics, but uh, that's about it. This week is or was the first week of the students, the new class of the program. Jamie and I were both in at MIT, the is Leaders it? for Global Operations program. They're on campus this year after last year. Clearly, right. the summer session was was not. So um, hopefully this incoming class gets something closer to the usual experience. Excellent. Well, I'm glad to hear glad to hear they're there. I knew they would be going back. I didn't realize this was the week they were starting, but that 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 tracks for me. So uh, that's that's really cool to cool to hear. So glad to glad they're glad they're there, and I wish them all the yeah. best. Yeah. So we did coffee last time. Uh, we're back to recording in the evening, and so we're back to the usual whiskey themes. And and speaking of whiskey, um, I think I had mentioned what I was pursuing previously, but Jamie and I both have some updates when it comes to education and certification that we've been pursuing. Jamie, do you want to share about yours? Yeah, so um, I think you were a little broader and more adventurous than I was, but uh, uh, not surprising. But I, I decided to do the uh, Scotch uh, prof- prof- Scotch professional certification. So mm-hmm. um, focused in on Scotch, I think when I take the test, it's at least 50% focused on the process of making scotch and then the next biggest chunk is on i think regions and knowing each of the regions and and very little on history and other stuff but i i have the 100 some page uh study guide um i'm starting to go through that i'm going to take that on vacation and make it enjoyable beach reading and hopefully next month at some point take the take the exam so yeah and that follows your lead for uh the certification you're going for yeah. So the, you know, the broader one is uh, it was a spirits education and certification. This was through um, the WSET, which does their, I think they're most well known for their wine sommelier certifications. Right. And so I jumped right into what they call the level two. I'll probably never pursue the level three education or certification, but I did the online exam on April 19th. And here it is eight weeks later. It was, it was 50. This is the mind. This is still just so puzzling. 50 questions, online, multiple exam test. And they said it could take up to 12 weeks to get the results. And, and there are, and, and I'm thankful for it. Um, I forget if I've mentioned before, there were many anti-cheating measures, including mm-hmm. videotaping yourself doing the exam. And I'm, I'm glad they do that. But even if, they review 30 to 45 minutes of video for each, I, I, I don't know, for each of us. Why, why is it taking that long? But hopefully when we get together to do our next episode, I can share good news about getting those results back. Right. Yeah, that's great. And 
Yeah, I don't I don't tend to stray from from wine and whiskey a, a whole lot, if ever. So uh, um, I, I think hearing about your spirit certification was was really interesting. But I was like half of it I'm not interested in uh, since since whiskey makes up about not half of the volume, but half of the complexity of the mm-hmm. spirits world. But yeah, when I saw the Scotch uh, certification, I thought that that's more of my speed. So uh, there you go. Yeah. I'm I'm already enjoying studying and learning a bit. I'm in just in the history section, so uh, I have a lot more reading to do. So hopefully we'll we'll be able to uh, uh, celebrate passing certifications that we have no intent of converting into any revenue streams. But uh, <laughs> does that okay. make our the whiskey portion of the Lean Whiskey podcast any more credible? Maybe not. I don't, you know, Maybe I don't it does. Know, Maybe it does. We'll 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 see. It's a uh, it won't change our approach, I doubt. So, <laughs> yeah. I, um, yeah, I mean, the, the the spirits exam. So much of the distillation process is pretty consistent. Then right. there are just peculiarities for other non whiskey spirits, and I still do have a bias. Like you can tell the way I put that. There's whiskey, and then there's everything else non whiskey. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now that's pretty much how I feel, and 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 I I very rarely partake in the other the other categories. So. Uh, so uh, yeah, I'm really interested in in, in learning more. And my my memorization of you know regions in Scotland was always pretty poor anyway. So this will mm-hmm. this will force me to get a little more a little more rigorous in my lear- learning. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to um, a, a little bit of you know rather than just casual reading, a little more of a forcing function with the, the pending exam to get myself to read read with some rigor. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, this is just a note I'm going to file away for later. I'm going to try to convince you maybe to do an episode in the future uh, where we taste mezcal. Okay. That's my new official second favorite spirit. Thanks to going <laughs> through uh, this course, because if you like PD scotch, the smokiness of mezcal, this is a similar character. It's still a different flavor, of course, right. being agave, but um, maybe at least get you to give it a try. I'm sure you can convince me to give it a try. So, <laughs> and then you you can throw some other in. Well, well, we haven't run out of ideas um, yet. So we we had I think an interesting concept today. But I was going to throw in just a random shout out because Jamie has been part of uh, this story and this journey over the last ten years. So this ten years ago this week was uh, when I joined up with a startup software company called Kinexus. And back then, long, you know, long story, 10 years, long story short, it was the two co-founders, Greg and Matt, and then it was me joining on to work part-time. And it's now grown, um, not just serving healthcare companies, but serving customers in uh, such a wide range of industries. Um, Mm -hmm. The team keeps growing. There's at least 20 people in the company. I still, I, I, I know everybody's names, but I don't know the exact count of how many people are there. Um, so it's just really, it's nice to look back and think, okay, wow, 10, 10 years. That's the longest I've been affiliated with any company other than my own company that I started 11 years ago. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. And my, you know, my history with Connexus is uh, building something similar to Connexus was always on my strategic plan. Cause I saw the, the need for it or the value in it. And, I just never got the resources committed to make that happen. And then when I found Connexus really through you, I said, all right, well, why, why should I go build something that competes? And I just invested in the company. I've been a 
a supporter of them ever mm-hmm. ever since. So uh, uh, since I haven't sipped yet, I'll just say you know, cheers to to ten years for you. Yeah. Well, thank you. You've been a good advisor, and we appreciate you participating in some of our user conferences. And maybe we can get you there 2022. We're looking forward to doing that in person again. Very possible. Yes. Excellent. So thank you for letting me give a shout out to the great folks at Connexus. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to uh, yeah, see if we can get somebody from 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 the somebody else from the company on the on the uh, the show, or maybe at the user conference we have a big. In fact, I do remember you and I going out to a couple of different bars to enjoy <laughs> some whiskey at a Kinexus user conference many years yeah. ago. So, and we also went to Franklin Barbecue, which is maybe a more wholesome activity. It, it, well, maybe not. I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, but it was it was certainly they were they were both delicious uh, moments of, yeah. of a Kinexus user conference. So yeah. Fantastic. So, um, yeah, to your point around running out of themes um, around whiskey is is while we haven't run out of themes, we've we've uh, perhaps we perhaps we're over trying to be overly creative and in, in coming up with them. <laughs> so we're we're doing a, a trick, uh, a twist, I should say, this this yeah. week, where we're doing surprise pours. Um, so each of our spouses poured something for us without us knowing. Uh, wrote down what 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 they poured for us, and so we have a unknown whiskey in each of our glasses, and and um, and we're gonna, you know, I, I don't think it's as much about the guessing, and especially as I did a big hike yesterday, my sinuses are probably gonna affect my ability to guess, but I'm also just not that good at it, um, to be honest. Yeah, but it, uh, it's not it's not about guessing right, but it's just to it's it's about the amusement of guessing. Yes, right. So uh, yep. So my mine's. Mine's fairly dark, but there's probably only a couple that I have that are darker. Um, yeah, it's a deep amber, orange. Pretty deep amber. There's, there's definitely a couple that are lighter for sure. Um, so I, I can rule out a couple. And I didn't, I gave no guidance. In fact, my wife was saying, there's so many bottles here. And I'm, I, yeah. why do you think it takes I, me so long to pour myself a glass? Because I've got to make I, a decision. I, I, yeah. I mean, I think to even guess the category right would be an accomplishment is it a scotch is it a bourbon yeah i think that 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 i hope i get right um but there's definitely some some twists and turns in uh in in making that decision i think guessing the actual bottle might be a stretch for me but yeah but i'll give that a shot yeah and what i've got here is is it's much more of a light hay straw color Mm-hmm. So right, even just by looking at it, it makes me think maybe Scotch, maybe Irish whiskey, maybe Japanese whiskey. And then the first the first taste, like it's not peated or it's very, very lightly peated. And I, I'm, my, my first guess is that it is finished in a sherry cask. Hmm. I'm getting so that, hints of and that. that. Yeah, the Japanese could could take you there. But but, yeah, it feels I mean, it certainly just looking at it, I would say is more, more likely to be Scotch or Japanese. Um, now I've taken a couple of sips and, you know, again, I'll be interested to find out if I'm dead wrong, but, um, there's enough spice on this that I'm, I'm guessing rye. Um, ah, okay. it, it could be, I don't think it's bourbon, not, not super sweet. Um, could be a, there's a couple of my scotches that it could be, 
but um, I'm going to, I'm going to guess rye. I have several ryes, so it's not hard to pick one of those bottles, but I've, I've got enough deep, you know, long spice, you know, not just on the yeah. front, but on the long tail, I've got enough spice that I'm, I'm going to guess rye. Okay. And it could be a high rye bourbon, but yeah, if you're getting that spice, that might it be it. So be I'm, I'm gonna, yeah. All right. So I'm going to just jump in. I'm going to just make a guess and not overthink it. I'm going to guess that this is an Irish whiskey. I think I've done it on one of the previous episodes. I never go back and look at our spreadsheet. Jamie and I, of course, we we have a spreadsheet. Of course. Um, of course. <laughs> I'm going to guess that this is an Irish whiskey that I know is sherry cask finish that I brought back and it's from uh, Teeling mm. Distillery in Dublin. So I'm going to take another step then. Do you, want, do you want me to grab the paper and? Well, yeah. Do, or do you want me to guess first as well? Okay, sure. If you're ready, go ahead. Yeah. All right. So, so I, 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 I want to say based on the color and the flavor whistle pig, but I, I seem to remember mm. whistle pig being smoother because um, I actually had some of that recently. And I think whistle pig is smoother than I'm getting here. So I'm going to say Michter's. Um, I got about a half bottle of that left. So I, that's, that's, that's my. Michter's rye. Michter's rye. Yeah. I have an unopened bottle of Michter's bourbon, but I'm going to say Michter's rye is my, is my guess. All right. So what, so what's your I'm big gonna... reveal? Oh, okay. Well, I think I, I get partial credit. I should have done. Jamie and I are both old enough. You remember the old Johnny Carson bit? Yes, Johnny Carson. What was that Carnac? That sounds right. Yeah. If and our average listener is as old as us or older, they will get that reference. Um, all right. I this is. I'm not surprised. This is one of my wife's favorites uh, producers. Actually, it, so it's a Scotch matured in bourbon and sherry casks. So I got the go. sherry part correct. I mean, yeah. it's on the same, it's on the same shelf, um, <laughs> underneath the teeling, uh, it's old Pulteney. Oh, okay. Interesting. Old, old Pulteney. You can yeah, see so I think it. With cherry. I, think it's, I think it's the red canister that's on the bottom. I can't do the weatherman thing. So that, yeah, and then that's okay. this one, that's the teeling. Not that that makes for great listening. Me pointing <laughs> at boxes in the background. Okay. So what you, what you got, Jamie? All right, so my my reveal, uh, head fake. It is it's in fact the whistle pig, uh, the whistle pig rye. Um, so uh, do you know I was, which I was one? In the category, um, yeah. And it's a ten year rye, so there's, there's plenty of mm -hmm. it in there. But I, I I pretty much called out the whistle pig as being incorrect. So you <laughs> um, say you overthought it, and that's why I stopped overthinking it. And if I kept thinking, maybe I would have come to Old Pulteney. Yeah, but I don't think I would have because I, I really I remember having a conversation about whistle pig being surprisingly smooth for a rye, mm -hmm. and 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 this at just at the moment doesn't feel super smooth, so I I, I don't think I ever would have concluded whistle pig. I would have probably guessed maybe maybe my willet. I may might have guessed my willet next, my willet rye, but I don't think I I, I seem to remember feeling like. Whistle pig is surprisingly smooth. So, yeah. but at least I, I guess the rye correctly. So again, yeah. well, partial credit. And then with that, with that kind of age, I mean, you, you don't find a lot of 10 year age statement rise. So that, that time in the barrel is um, probably mellowing, uh, mellowing it out when you, cause at first, yeah. you know, it sounded like you were describing maybe a younger rye when you, you thought it was, um, 
real spicy. But right, right. No, and and the whistle pig is. I mean, it definitely benefits from that ten years in the barrel. So uh, um, it's 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 a it's a darn good rye. I will say, yeah. I really enjoy everything they they do. So so um, so that's our blind tasting. Um, that yeah. was fun. I'll, I'll I'd do that again. All right. Um, I'd do that again. So uh, we'll have to we'll have to give that a shot. But I'm going to enjoy. Uh, um, let me ask you a question. I, I so I, I gave my wife this instruction just to control it. Is I used to just pour whiskey in a glass, and even if I'm doing neat whiskey, I've started measuring how many ounces I'm pouring. And I'm you know I know bartenders do that, but that's cost control. That's not, right. <laughs> that's about cost. For me, it's not about cost. It's about basically just being aware of how much I'm drinking. Um, and, and so I've, I've taken to only very recently, like the last two weeks, I've taken to that being a, a discipline. So I'm just curious, do you, do you, when you're just drinking whiskey neat, do you, do you measure it or do you just pour it? I usually do measure it. Um, but I've learned with the, with the Glen Cairn glass, I believe like the widest point of the bulb uh, the widest point of the glass, if you fill to that point, is right about two ounces. Okay. So I've learned pretty well how to eyeball that. But there is something satisfying. Gosh, how many ounces are in a 750 milliliter bottle? Oh, <laughs> I don't want to try to do math for how, how you know, alive. So um, I can hear but- it. Um, we can, that's easily Googled. There are 25 fluid ounces in a 750. So last night we had uh, some friends over and I made a cocktail for a friend, a, and maybe we'll do this in a future episode, a quote unquote, perfect Manhattan with um, sweet vermouth and dry vermouth. And there was a bottle of rye. Um, it was um, rabbit hole rye from mm. Kentucky Nice. And there's something, at least for me, incredibly satisfying when you go to pour two ounces out of a bottle and there's almost exactly two ounces left. <laughs> I'm like, I did like it's I, it, 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 it is a good, nice, uh, even number in the bottle. So if you do a couple one and a half ounce pours or a one ounce pour here and there, you can get that sort of perfect finish yeah. to the bottle. Well, I'll, I'll uh, like I said, I, I, I found good reason to, to start doing it. So I'm, I'm probably going to keep up that discipline. So I, I asked for a two ounce pour and yeah, and uh, that's what I got. And um, I used, I change up my glasses a lot. So eyeballing it with a glass is probably a poor mechanism for me. Um, but, uh, I, but yeah, and I, you know, I happened to make my first Kentucky mule last night. So uh, I own, uh, with Town Branch uh, bourbon, so that was my mm-hmm. own little, own little twist of uh, trying something last night. So, we'll see. So now we're, we're this is almost lean talk because now we're talking about like process. measurement systems, analysis, yeah. and the process and the standard work um, for for doing a pour. But I'm going to share a random. I know this counts as a life hack. If you're at a bar and you see a bottle, you're going to order a pour from. And if the bottle looks pretty close to empty, I have many times been the beneficiary of, well, eh, there's some extra here. I'll just pour it for you. Uh, freebie. Yes. And if, if, if there's not a full shot in the bottle, 
and they have to go open another, sometimes you end up with that whatever left in the bottom as uh, a freebie. So that either sounds smart or pathetic, depending on if someone's listening to this, they're probably a whiskey fan and they're probably saying, you know what? Ah, that's smart. I'm going to order the bottle that looks low. Yeah. Well, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to have to open another bottle mid drink prep because to make the customer wait. It could be at a time that they're super busy. So anything they can do to get, get ahead of the game is, 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 is a good thing. So, um, Sounds like a good strategy. I been a while since I ordered a, a whiskey at a bar, but um, uh, <laughs> right. So, uh, and many times it's a little far away for me to see uh, see exactly how big the bottle is. But that's an that's an interesting strategy and worth a <laughs> worth a shot. Uh, <laughs> so, yes. All right. Was that so joke a mistake? Was it, was that joke a mistake, Jamie? No, it was not a mistake. Oh, oh. It was uh, a. <laughs> It was deliberate and knowingly bad as I made it or before I made it. So, uh, yeah, but I'm okay with that. I'll own, I'll own the bad joke. The bad <laughs> it wasn't that bad. <laughs> I, I heard somebody the other day, because um, we'll all do this, we'll say uh, uh, pun not intended or pun intended. And, and it was some comedian. They're like, nobody cares if your pun was intended or not. I'm like, okay, right. good tip. Yes, that's that's uh, that's 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 a fair point. Um, I, I think somebody people like to point out that you made one because then they feel super smart um, <laughs> catching you in a pun. But uh, but yeah, they they really don't care. And quite frankly, I you know I tell my kids if you got to explain the joke, it's just not that funny anymore. So <laughs> right. So I think that qualifies on pun intended. So yeah. So speaking of, uh, since you brought up a mistake in this case, that, that, that was not pun intended, but that was intended. That sorry. was intended. Sorry. That was sorry intended as our, as our category, um, uh, kind of in the news, if you will. But, um, I, we're going to, we're going to talk about, uh, sort of editorial news in a sense, in that is your publication and growth of the very successful, my favorite mistake podcast, um, which is, uh, you know, very one of your many podcasts, right? We've talked on the show about, you know, this is one of several, uh, one of many, I guess. Several is not not a big enough word anymore for you. So one of one of many. Um, but my favorite mistake didn't start too long ago. Um, almost a, a year. It'll be almost a, year a year come September. Yeah. And you're you're how many episodes in now? Seventy five. Seventy five. So we're we're at twenty eight, right? We started. Mm-hmm. Further ago, but we well, didn't have. But uh, th- th- I mean, this here is basically a, a monthly podcast. I've been doing my favorite mistake twice a week yes. because I I didn't know at the beginning how many people would be willing to talk about professional mistakes, and I ended up with a big inventory of people who had said yes and recorded. So um, I've been cranking those out, but it's 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 been fun. So how, how how do you how do you gauge it a success? I guess that's the. Well, I think I think the fact. <laughs> The fact that there's so many episodes and there's and, and so I think that's a factor. And, you know, there's a there's a conclusion behind it or an assumption behind it that you wouldn't do it if people didn't want them, uh, if you got that far. But but also, I think the the quality and breadth of the the, the, the guests you've had um, on there has been significant um, and not, you know, this you didn't just double tap on the on the lean 
the lean community, right? There's there's actually relatively little of that. I mean, yeah, it, it goes wide and far from uh-huh. from uh, you know people in the entertainment industry to the sports industry, and 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 I had a congressman, congressman. Right? So it, it is a very broad uh, uh, set with with very uh, very high level. You know, in terms of success, their their own their own success, very high level set of set of guests attending. So that um, it, it's been fun to watch how rapidly that started, and how how it's continued really again for this for the last year, well, uh, quite quite successfully. So it 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 survives. I mean, I could be overproducing if we want to go back to the lean term. I do see listener numbers, and it has grown pretty steadily as a podcast will tend to do. I, it's, it's not a set the world on fire. That's why, why do people say that as a positive? That's not setting the world on fire. Well, that's a bad no, thing, but probably a bad um, thing. We'll, we'll say that. But, but I mean, you know, I mean, I I've enjoyed the networking and the learning and the chance to reflect. And we're going to do some of that um, here today, reflecting on mistakes and what it takes to create an organization where it's safe and okay to talk about mistakes. So like, you know, the themes of psychological safety, I think mm-hmm. come out in, especially in the episodes when we're having more of those kind of organizational culture type conversations as we do with a lot of guests. Yeah. So, so, you know, we, we've talked about the origins of this show with, with us, you know, being as, as we already talked about within this show, being in Austin and having a whiskey and talking shop. And why don't we just record our conversations um, so what's, what's the origin of, of my favorite mistake? What, what got this whole thing started? So I think part of the foundation for it was a book that I initiated and, and wrote for and edited and, and, and Jamie, you contributed a chapter, uh, a book called Practicing Lean. And the core theme of that book is, you know, when we think back to, the early years of our own lean practice, we've all done things that we would look back at and say, oh, that was a mistake. But we've learned from it. And, you know, I think part of the spirit of the book was sharing these mistakes as a reminder, you know, for others who are starting out. Say, well, you know, we learn through mistakes. Maybe if we have a good coach, we can avoid anything that's too painful. But, you know, it's just this recognition of we all uh, make mistakes. And, and I think it's, I mean, it's a reminder myself to not be too harsh in criticism of people who might be new to something and might make a mistake. So there's a little bit of that foundation where I think I had that in, in my head the last five years since that book was out. And then, you know, having the lean podcast that I've been doing, that's going to be coming up on its 15th anniversary in July, um, the lean blog interviews podcast. Right. I would get pitched by different PR firms saying like, oh, so-and-so has written a book. Can, you, can they be on your podcast? And more often than not, I would have to say no because it just – it wasn't a fit. And I'm like, oh, that right. sounds like an interesting person. But like so I've, I've had guests where the topic is more just about leadership than it is about lean. I do, do that very sporadically. Sure. But then uh, maybe last May or June – a PR firm reached out and said, hey, Kevin Harrington, who was on season one of Shark Tank, he was one of mm-hmm. the sharks, one of the really creators of the TV infomercial, 
right? He had a new book out that he had co-authored with another entrepreneur. Hey, can he be on your podcast? I'm like, oh, I don't know if there's, oh. and I, I really want, and not that I was the biggest fan of him. I like Shark Tank. Um, but I thought, oh, I would love to interview him. And so I started coming, I started thinking about how can I find a way to say yes? And I brainstormed with that PR guest booker and I think one other who had reached out. Everything from just the generic business podcast, the Mark Graben show or whatever, right. not, you know, something of not lean. And but then I also had this idea, well, how about one focused on sharing a story about mistakes and a mistake that was a favorite? Like I had the Sheryl Crow song in my head at some point. Right. And I think maybe maybe a podcast on that theme. And the, and the PR person loved the idea. Kevin Harrington liked the idea. And so that became episode one. And I thought, well, okay, hopefully I can find others. <laughs> <laughs> and you have. So that's cool. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's, that's fun because you hadn't told me that story yet. Um, and, and, and I love, it's so much better than the Mark Raven show. So uh, I think so. Yeah. I think, um, and it, and it really has taken on its own, its own flavor. And, and of course a lot of breadth and, and I, I like just the idea of saying, Hey, I want to talk to that person. I want to say yes. How can I say yes without destroying the, the brand a 15 year brand, which is the lean lean blog podcast that really had, it has a purpose and has a listener base that, that wants to hear about certain things. So so that's a it's a really really uh, really neat story about how you got to that. So, um, so well, thanks. And I, I was just going to throw out there for for people who are listening to this who have a lot of interest in lean, like there are episodes with people you might know and recognize from Absolutely. the lean community: um, Karen Ross, Billy Taylor, uh, Karen Martin um, are the first three who come to mind, and then there are a few other guests I've interviewed who are. Uh, involved in lean. There, there, there's one guy from uh, one of the Toyota Industries companies that does material handling equipment. And so it was really good to hear his perspective on a company that was acquired by Toyota, trying to make it more of a Toyota culture, which is one of pulling the end on cord, pointing out problems, admitting mistakes, not being blamed for it personally. Um, and and uh, one I haven't released yet, the overlap between lean and whiskey is our mutual friend, David Meyer. So nice. that episode with David will be coming out later this year. People hopefully know him as, you know, co-author of the Toyota way field book and Toyota talent with, with Jeff Liker. Well, listeners of this show will, will, you know, definitely know him because we've talked about him more than more than yeah. once uh, as, as the ultimate crossover yeah. lean whiskey guys. So, Oh, and, and one other whiskey uh, crossover, one of my early episodes had both Dan Garrison from Garrison Brothers Distillery That's and right. Donis Todd, who's the master distiller. So okay. they each told the story. They both talked about uh, the culture and, and, and being uh, Texas-y ranch language. They talked about it as fessing up. You got to <laughs> fe fess up to your mistakes. Nice. You're you're not rebranding the uh, uh, the podcast fessing up to my favorite. Fessing up. <laughs> <laughs> my, that might, might be a, that, a that might be a country song out there called fessing up. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure it probably already is. There's yeah. There's plenty of them. So, 
And 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 we're we're going to actually share some of our favorite mistakes, just uh, a little more freestyle in in this episode. But um, what's what's the for those who haven't heard it yet? What's the basic structure? I mean, it's not just storytelling, but how do you get into someone's favorite mistake? Well, so you know, I do ask them to think about it in advance, and you know, I've uh, I've a favorite mistake is different than you know the show is not called my biggest mistake right and sometimes right. guests think like oh you want me to talk about my biggest mistake i'm like well a biggest mistake might be a favorite mistake but a biggest mistake might be too embarrassing too painful whereas might involve lawyers <laughs> yeah um a favorite mistake is something that was probably big enough that it sticks with you it's something that either like as I step back and try to categorize the favorite mistakes, um, there, there, are, there are mistakes that seem like a good idea at the time, but then turned out to be a mistake, as time will tell. Uh, and then there are, um, you know, things that, you know, just some, a mistake that somehow opened up doors that were unexpected. So maybe there are, you know, happy accidents that come as the result of a mistake. But um, like, you know, the, the episode uh, that I released, episode 76, just recently here, a friend of mine uh, going back to elementary school, tells a story when he was working as a consultant uh, for a, a telecom company. Um, you know, basically, it's a, he, he says, and I believe him, like the, the thing that happened was so formative to him in his career that he thinks about it literally every day. So not that it haunts him, I don't think, no, but right. it's, it, it, it's big reminder. enough that he it's a reminder as he tries to operate now being maybe 10 or 12 years older um, to avoid repeating the mistake. And that's right. definitely one of the themes of the podcast. It's not to come and, and beat ourselves up. I don't beat up the guests. What, what, what's wrong with you? It's really more about the spirit of, you know what, it happened. It's better to reflect and to think about it and talk about it and A, help people realize even somebody who has been incredibly successful in their career has still made mistakes. Nobody's perfect. We're all human. Maybe no big surprise. But, you know, sometimes, you know, if you look at business profiles, it's mostly about just the raving successes. And so I think, you know, the, the humility of someone willing to say, yeah, I've been successful, but here's a mistake that I made and I learned from, and let's talk about it. Like, I, th I think that's really cool. Yeah. Neat. So uh, before we, we share quickly, fairly quickly, uh, some of our, our own, we're not going to go in, in as, as much depth as your, your actual show. Uh, wanted to stay on our whiskey theme and, and share a couple whiskey related, not personal, but whiskey related mistakes. Um, that, that turned out well, right? To that, that theme of, you know, it could be a mistake and turn out well. So I just, I just, I didn't go looking for one. I just happened to find one uh, in my reading the other day. And I didn't tell you about this one in advance. So I, I just yeah. want to see if you, you've heard this story before um, and what you think of it, but it involves, and I'll hold up the bottle for our, our listeners or for our viewers, but Angostura bitters. So so everyone that buys this is at some point looking at this oversized label that doesn't fit and right. going, why? What is the purpose of this label? So, yeah. so here's the history, because this is the most storied and, and historic 
uh, you know, bidders company that, mm-hmm. that there is, right? This it's, is really the, the most ubiquitous ever. If a bar doesn't have Angostura bitters, uh, that, that, yeah. that would be shocking. Yeah. It would be shocking. Yeah. So, so what happened was the, uh, the founder, uh, passed away in, in 18, uh, 1870 and his three sons, uh, took over. They decided to enter a design competition and one son designed the bottle and another son designed the label and they (laughs) didn't compare notes. I was just thinking, yeah. (laughs) They didn't compare notes. So they came together (laughs) and one had the bottle and one had a label and it didn't fit. And it was too late. The design, the deadline was due. And so they had to run with it and, and they failed that they did not win. They did not win the design competition, but one of the judges said, you know what? You should keep it that way because it's <laughs> memorable. Mm-hmm. And they have. It's distinctive. Yeah. Ever since, in fact, so much so that other bidders companies copy the label, con- the oversized label concept uh, to try to, to draft in the, the success of, hmm. of the design. I but, did not know that story. Well, good. I'm glad I, glad I, provided a little whiskey related uh, knowledge, mm-hmm. but, but it really is. I mean, you know, the label, the label is noticeable or the, the design of the label is noticeable, but the fact that it's oversized is unmissable and, yeah. and absolutely an iconic part of this brand that stuck with them for an extremely long time, which I think is an all by accident, which I think is super cool. Although the decision to stick with it, I think is pretty bold that they yeah. decided not to go back and correct it. And uh, so I think that was a bold decision, even though they got advice to do so. Um, so once they made the mistake, they were smart enough to recognize the value of it. Yeah. Now, I mean, I'm not a lawyer and this is not a legal podcast, but you think about uh, trademarks. Maybe maybe because the design and the company are so old, it's not an issue. But like Maker's Mark is famous for uh, the wax dip and then they turn the bottle over and the wax drips down, that is trademarked. And other liquor companies would get in trouble for having wax that drips down. So Garrison Brothers and other producers who dip the wax, they need to make sure it doesn't drip down like Maker's Mark. But uh, maybe that trademark, I don't know if maybe trademarks don't expire the way copyright does with an old song or an old book. Yeah, it, 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 I'm not an expert. I'll, I might have to go research that a bit, but, um, and maybe it's just too hard to enforce, right? Maker's Mark has a little more muscle behind them than than most people do. So, yeah. Even though I wonder, Angostura bitters are probably part of some big, huge mega alcohol conglomerate. They could be, they could be at this point, like a Pernod Ricard or. Well, no. Well, it says uh, manufactured by Angostura Limited, Port of Spain, Trinidad. So uh, okay, I didn't know it was from Trinidad. Yeah, you're right. Angostura Holdings. It is still an independent company. Yeah, so it's founded wow. in eight, founded in 1830 in Venezuela. That's that's all really cool. <laughs> They're also a distiller and a rum producer, but interesting yeah, that they haven't been. Uh, snapped up and gobbled up. That's a very cool story. Um, You know, I've been, uh, you know, there there are mistakes that are really newsworthy in distilling. Uh, A rickhouse collapse. Uh, 
mm-hmm. like 1792 Barton Distillery, um, a, 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 a warehouse fire. Mm-hmm. You know, those are awful, um, awful mistakes. Or, you know, you think, well, is there a mistake involved? Um, is it just, a, you know, a lightning or strike? A that, was it just a bad outcome? Um, was it preventable? Maybe right. you know, kind of comes back to, was it a matter of bad process or was it an act of God? Um, you know, like if a rickhouse collapsed, I'm speculating here, but like if, let's say there hadn't been proper inspections and proper maintenance, you could call that a mistake. Right. It's not like it was hit by a tornado. Right. Yeah. I think there, I think a rickhouse collapsed. I mean, you know what the weight is. I mean, you, 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 you know exactly what the weight is. So, so it's, uh, it, it shouldn't be a surprise. It's not like you overloaded it. Um, so it, it really comes down to, uh, um, uh, both the design and the maintenance of the, of the property, which, you know, given, given some of the old properties that you see in Europe, it can be managed. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but there are, there, there are two versions of the story. Like I'm almost done with my whiskey, but even that very light yellow color or the darker amber color of Jamie's rye, that color of course comes from the barrel that it's aged in, uh, you know, it's distilled, uh, comes out clear. Um, you're not allowed to add coloring, um, to, to straight bourbon whiskey or straight rye whiskey, for example, that color comes from the barrel. And in Kentucky, they tell a story that may or may not be true about shipping whiskey down the Mississippi river to Louisiana. And it just barrels with what you would ship, product in. You would ship molasses or other products in barrels. And they discovered, huh, the barrel actually transformed the bourbon. In Scotland, they tell a similar story about shipping barrels overseas. Right. And so I'd I'd be curious, um, well, maybe your class will cover this, Jamie, and you can tell us, but was this sort of a parallel discovery or is it just kind of a story that sounds good? Yeah, no, I... And I do think uh, I do think it covers uh, the history of going from clear whiskey to uh, to barrel aged whiskey. Um, but it doesn't I, I, I do know it doesn't compare the story to uh, the bourbon manufacturers. So uh, so we'll 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 have to uh, we'll have to imagine. And, and whiskey is famous for uh, um, for the myth, the legend uh, not always being thoroughly based on fact. Um, right. I think it's an industry where the, the myth and the legend and the story is we're all okay leaving it alone because it's too much fun that if it would be too much fun for it to possibly be real. So, so a couple, uh, a couple of whiskey related, uh, mistakes, um, mm-hmm. that, that we've benefited from, um, mm. in, in, in different ways. So, uh, so th- those are fun. And then, oh. yeah. I was just thinking, um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to frantically Google it because there was one whiskey. Okay, here, here it is. Redemption whiskey. This has maybe happened with at least one brand. Yeah, uh, this is the one I'd heard of. They have a whiskey that they call Tyler's Mistake because according to those behind it, uh, a guy named Tyler accidentally combined rye bourbon barrels and bourbon barrels and they turned out they liked the blend and that happens, right? I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes intentionally, right. that would be a fun episode to try to track down Tyler. Yes. 
<laughs> that would be um, or although or somebody it, it, from Redemption Whiskey. Yes, it, it, it kind of sounds like Tyler might be just a, a guy that that uh, you know, moved barrels around and mis mislabeled, not necessarily the master distiller Tyler. Um, not that a master distiller can't be called Tyler, but some, something about that tells me, uh, yeah, maybe maybe there wasn't so yeah. much uh, in, uh, intentionality behind, you know, yeah. making the most of that mistake. So, But in, in, in his episode um, with, with Dan Garrison, Donis Todd is the master distiller at Garrison Brothers, told the story about uh, overaging uh, some mm -hmm. kind of special release whiskey that he was working on. And it basically they're like, yeah, we can't sell this. And they, they threw it out. Right. And that was an expensive mistake, but they didn't fire him. Right. And I think just the intent, you know, they said like, if you're, I mean, there's some who would say, if you're not making mistakes, you're not trying hard enough to be innovative or creative. Uh, but, you know, I think Donis learned from that and um, I'll, I'll, we, we can put a link to that episode in the show notes, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so Jamie, do you have, I mean, maybe I forget if uh, I forget what you wrote in practicing lean, what, what, what's an example that you have of a favorite mistake story? Yeah. So, so while, I, you, while, I did, you, while you're telling that, I'm going to pour a little bit more whiskey. Yeah, please do. So, uh, yeah, I actually did, you know, I'm holding up the practicing lean book. I, I actually thought about practicing lean, but it wasn't as much about a mistake as it was, uh, just some, some, some of my first steps. So I didn't think I really had one there, but, but around the same time, um, I had a couple of related to my process of going on interviews and and uh looking for a job and uh and 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 I, I continue to go back to these stories um because they, they do provide a reminder of, of of certain things but but I had a couple and they were all logistical mistakes um but but one was I was I was going to an interview at Colgate and uh the hotel's alarm clock was off by 12 hours. Oh no. So I had so I had set I had set the alarm at the hotel alarm clock and it didn't go off. Yeah. Because it was 12 hours off. And 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 you know and I didn't wake up. I woke up to a phone call from Colgate going, are you coming today? Yeah. Because <laughs> you're supposed to be here already. And this was Colgate and, um, the toothpaste company, not Colgate the University. Correct. Colgate the toothpaste company. So engineering job uh, um, yeah. with them. And I did not get that job, um, but, but almost, and I, you know, I made the interview. I just, I was late, but um, uh, almost, almost as bad and, and perhaps very close to a hundred percent worse was uh, my interview at Chrysler. Um, I had to fly out there. I wasn't terribly excited to move into the Midwest um, I got dropped off. There was an ice storm in Bethlehem and, uh, I got dropped off. My friend actually, you know, dinged up his car after, you know, driving home after dropping him off at the airport. I was there in the morning. I had canceled flights, delayed flights. I was there for a very long time. And at some point late in the afternoon, I'm like, this is, I don't even want this job. And this is just not working. Mm. So I, you know, I called at the time and, and used terms of that, that are contextually correct for the time. I called the person's secretary who had, had set up my interviews and was basically going to tell her I'm not coming. Hmm. Um, 
I'm just, just take me off the list. I'm just not going to go. This isn't going to work. And, um, and I, I couldn't reach her. She had already left for the day and we didn't have cell phones. I had somebody picking me up at the hotel at 7 AM. And I just, I felt bad about not being able to know how to get this person a message. So I stuck it out and I eventually got a flight. I eventually got there at like 2 AM. I had, because it was just a short flight and I was going to have plenty of time in my hotel room, I had actually like folded up my suit into a very small backpack and I was just going to iron it or steam yeah. it when I got there. I was young enough that it wasn't a very nice suit anyway. Um, and so I had to make it, you know, it was, it was folded up much longer than I had intended. Um, and and uh, yeah, so I got in super late, just a couple hours sleep. I, you know, was, was basically running on adrenaline and, and then, you know, as it turns out, I love the people I met and, um, ended up taking the job. And a lot of what I've done since was based on the work I did at Chrysler or the relationships I built or other things that happened. And, and, and so, you know, I just think about what would have happened if that person had answered the phone, right? Mm -hmm. What would, what would have happened to, to my my career, my path. And so it's kind of reminded me uh, around career paths, you know, and and just, you know, career decisions just to, to, to not overthink it, to not overplan it, to let things happen. And and because uh, you never know when they might happen for the worse. You never know when they might happen for the better. Because yeah. I really I mean, this was this was a job interview I was going on just in case I didn't get other jobs. Yeah. And um, it turns out it was the best one and that's lots of good things happened because of it. So that that's a story I still tell because I, it reminds me and it helps me tell the story to other college students. Don't don't overplan your career. Yeah. Well, yours, that one's in the maybe more unusual category of the, you know, you thought then it was a mistake to go for the interview and then it actually turned out really well. It was a mistake thinking it was a mistake. It was a mistake thinking it was a mistake. It was also a mistake to make the phone call to uh, to say, take me off the list, mm-hmm. right? It's not worth me flying out there. Yeah. And and it was a mistake that fortunately wasn't allowed to materialize, right? Again, if, if she had answered, unless, unless Tom, the guy that was running the interviews, was still there and she put me through to him and he talked me out of canceling, you know, there's a lot of ways that that could have gone worse. So it was, it was a mistake that, that, that I made trying to get out of it. Um, that, that basically because of circumstances didn't, didn't materialize as I tried to commit what would have been a mistake. Yeah. And then back to the alarm clock thing. Um, that is one that's tripped up a lot of people. I'm sure. I don't know. I can't remember if I've been tripped up by that, but for at least a decade, I have only used my trusty iPhone as a hotel room alarm clock because it's a consistent interface. Yeah. And I and keep the, more the, more, the alarm set the same, no matter where I am, a phone and that alarm is with me. Yeah. No. And I, I more and more hotel rooms don't even put clocks in them because mm-hmm. nobody, you know, everybody uses their phone now. And you said, I didn't have one then, but, uh, so you were dependent on that or bringing your own, which was what yeah. people did for decades before. The, the other mistake that I have been tripped up by, it's not 
the mistake of not checking the AM-PM. To which our European friends and European listeners would say, this is the benefit of 24-hour time. <laughs> yes, they would. Yep. And, and very true. <laughs> and, 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 and you can post in the comments about the metric system too, if you want. But uh, <laughs> our mistake maybe of not embracing that. But um, that's why mistakes are, um, you know, in the eye of the beholder, if it's a mistake or not. But I have been tripped up by the mistake of being in a hotel room where the person in the room the night before apparently had a 5 a.m. flight and they had the alarm clock set for like 345. And because I'm using my phone as an alarm clock, I didn't even think to double check that that'll, you know, and so then they, then it goes off at 345 and wakes me up for yep. no, no good reason. That's a yep. mistake. Uh, that, that has happened to me as well. So, but um, I, that's why almost by standard process, I'm pretty aggressive if I can of just unplugging it because I just have no need for it. Glowing, beeping, I, no, being being yep. off five minutes and throwing me off for some reason. Yeah. Like I just I don't or, need it. Or, or every every time you uh, daylight savings time being off by an hour because yeah. they they don't systematically go through the hotel and change all the clocks and. Uh, so then, or it's a clock that's old enough. If it was automated, it's now wrong because Congress changed the dates of daylight savings time. Right. So the before we turn this into the travel episode, um, do, travel you, do you have a yeah. yeah? Which which has a whole nother one. Um, mm. It's a whiskey and travel uh, storytelling. But um, do you have a, do you have a favorite mistake you want to share? Yeah, so yeah, I've been on some other podcasts where people have asked me, they've turned the tables. What's your favorite mistake? Um, I usually tell a story that is there in practicing lean. Before we get into that, I mean, I also think, um, I think, uh, you know, uh, another favorite mistake would be, like, you know, coming out of MIT, I took a job at Dell Computer in 1999. In some ways, I thought, taking that job was a mistake after I'd been there for a while, different than mm -hmm. your, like you had doubts during the interview phase. You know, I left Dell after a little bit under two years. Um, I just didn't think I was a good fit there culturally, long story short, but I met my wife there. So therefore <laughs> taking it, cause she was a consultant with a big firm that was there on a project. So um, in a way, my, my favorite mistake is uh, taking that job because other there was good that came out of it professionally, but I am really fortunate and thankful that I, that I met my wife there. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a neat one. So um, yeah, that's that, that similar thing, right? I mean, it, it could be mistakes, but they, they can turn out well. And, and so, uh, you know, what's all the things that come with a job? It's not just the career, right? It's, it's, it's a sense of accomplishment. It's friends you make, it's the people you meet and who knows, Right. It, it may yeah. turn out to be yeah. to be a future future spouse. So um, yeah. very cool. But, but back to the more kind of strictly professional story. Um, the story that I tell in practicing lean is one when I was working in my last manufacturing job at Honeywell. And if I was in my office, I could point over my shoulder to my plaque on the wall that says I am a. <clears throat> Certified lean expert, their language, not mine. Right. And, you know, it was, a, it was a lean black belt program, basically, in parallel to their Six Sigma black belt program. And in the course of that, I had to do a project 
It was a certification project. And, and my mistake was having, uh, was, was not engaging the frontline employees enough in the process of developing, you know, I, I, I did the math and everything technically correct around uh, changeovers, batch sizes, inventory levels, Kanban system, visual management of it. It was all technically very correct. Now, you know, I said, well, why, you know, people won't be shocked. Like, well, you know, and I look back at it and like, how did I not engage the frontline staff more? But I think in some ways I was a victim of the prevailing culture mm-hmm. where part of the issue was that we were having production shortages and inventory problems. And the idea that, hey, I want to help, I want to shut down production so that I can get the frontline workers involved was kind of a non-starter because mm-hmm. it wasn't a lean culture at all. They were stuck in this trap of, you know, some of it was, I think, not fully. Res- I think I, I think I respected the frontline employees more. This is me saying this is easy to say more than the culture as a whole. And there were different artifacts and evidence of like, you know, salaried staff, maybe not fully appreciating and respecting the frontline staff. So it's one of those things where I'm like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm culpable where I could have fought harder. Well, I think at the time I realized, like, I, I think this is a mistake. People aren't going to buy into the system because they weren't involved in creating it. And, and I think that was very much the case. So, like, I could have done something. Maybe the mistake is not speaking up and fighting hard enough about finding a way to get more frontline staff involvement. Because otherwise, otherwise they were too busy to be involved in right. improvement that might have gotten us out of that trap of, you know, why were we running out of inventory? Because there's just, there wasn't a plan for when to do changeovers of different products. And they were always running out of one and then panicking and switching over to that one. And then they would run out of something else. And I'm like, we got to put a stop uh, to that cycle. But I, you know, I tried to learn from it to now, I think the application as a consultant is I do not want to allow myself to be in a situation where a client would say, come in, and fix this for us without engaging the frontline staff. I'm like, I'm in a place in my career where I don't have to say yes to that. Yeah, well, that's a good one. And, I, you know, I'll maybe just reframe it in a little different way is, as, as you kind of described the story, was it a mistake of not engaging the staff? Sure. Or was it a mistake of not pushing against the prevailing culture, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the prevailing culture right. kind of overwhelmed some of your decisions and, and that and that uh, ultimately led you down that path. Um, so that's that, that's that's a good one because you know I think again we as we get at a place where we can be pickier and choosier about what we do and who we do it with, mm-hmm. um, you know that's an easier mistake to avoid. Um, yeah. But you know it, it it you know part of it I think is recognizing your options when you when you have them. Uh, even earlier on. So, yeah. So that one has stuck with me and I, you know, I think it's a favorite mistake because it was big enough to be meaningful and it stuck with me. And, you know, I've, I've tried to make sure I don't repeat that one. Yeah. And you've been a, a champion through, through your, your books and your, your, your blogs and your podcasts for in, engaging uh, and supporting uh, the workforce, whether that's in hospitals or manufacturing or anything else. That's, I think nobody's, nobody that follows you is going to question where you stand on that today. So. Yeah. But, but looking back, I mean, that goes back to the spirit of practicing lean, you know, hopefully looking back over time, 
we're 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 better at this than we were five years ago, which is better than we were 10 years ago, which is better than we were 20 years ago in different ways. As we learn right. more, as we get more experiences, as we learn from our mistakes, but you know, we, we might be able to touch on some other examples, but I wanted to ask you a question, Jamie, um, as if this were an episode of my favorite mistake, I would ask you your thoughts on the importance of creating the organizational culture where people don't hide and cover up mistakes? How do we create a culture where it's safe to speak up? What are some of your experiences or thoughts about that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, besides the obvious that I think it's important because we, we learn, we learn from mistakes. We can, we can over-index some of our learning, right? To your, some of the points of a measure of success is, you know, don't, don't just chase one data point. So we over-index on a mistake we made and then we, we go too far the other way, and those those are risks. Um, but fundamentally, yes, we got we've got to learn from them. But I think, you know, if I were to share perhaps a, a, a different or an additional perspective around that, is that most organizations I witness, it's how how okay is it to make a mistake is based on your position and how much you get paid, <laughs> and. And so there's a premise that, oh, the more, the more we pay you and the higher you get in the organization, well, we're doing that because you're less likely to make mistakes. And so yeah. even when it is a mistake, we're, we're not going to term it as such. Um, we're going to point somewhere else, whether intentional or not. And, and so what that does is it sends, sends a signal to everyone else that um, success equals not making mistakes. Mm-hmm. So even for those that are lower uh, in the organization and, you know, and, and perhaps just less ex- experienced, less successful, the message is, hey, if you want to get ahead, don't make mistakes. Those are the people we promote because you don't hear them talking about mistakes. So I, I, I think, you know, having leadership really, uh, really set the tone um, of, of, uh, of showing their own mistakes, showing their vulnerability, showing that, hey, I'm not perfect. Here's my gaps. Here's the gaps I'm working on. Mm-hmm. If it's okay for me to work on gaps, then it's then it's going to be okay and expected for you to work on gaps. So I think that that to me is is uh, is number one um, in terms of you know I'll say moving the needle on embracing mistakes and more importantly embracing embracing the learning. Um, yeah. Of, of, of the mistakes. So leading by example in a lot of ways, leading with humility of not trying to have this, this air or this veneer of perfection. Like this is something Dr. John Toussaint, uh, I think has talked about quite effectively in, in speeches and in his books of shifting the culture from what he calls white coat leadership, the all knowing mm-hmm. infallible you know, never wrong executive. And he said, he calls it white coats because physician executives tend to wear the white coat of the physician. And as John points out, because he was a chief medical officer and then he was a chief executive officer, that mentality of white coat leadership is also uh, there sometimes to somebody wearing a blue suit, male business suit or female business suit who has a non-clinical background as an executive. Yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, people want to emulate the leaders that they aspire to be or the 
leaders in positions that they aspire to get, right? Because short of a clear career path or clear feedback about where you stand, the best thing to do is mimic what you aspire to be. And so, so that's where, um, you know, that's where leaders can really set the tone. And, and fundamentally, even if it's not about creating a culture where it's okay to make mistakes, let's just acknowledge that you probably make some. And so if people don't see you acknowledge it, right? I mean, once you make a mistake, you basically have two choices. Either hope no one noticed or um, acknowledge it yourself, right? Other, if, if, if you don't choose one of those two paths, then the path you did choose by default is that they did notice and they assume you didn't notice your own mistake, right? right. And so the, the, the crush to your credibility to make mistakes, even small ones, mm-hmm. and let the people believe that you didn't even see them. You didn't even notice them. You didn't even know you were making mistakes. I think that's far worse than, than anything else you could do around making a mistake, right? Because yeah. it's basically two mistakes. That's what the people think you've made. You made a mistake and you weren't even smart enough to see it. Or you weren't, I was going to say, I don't know if brave is the right word. You weren't honest, you weren't honest enough to admit it. You weren't brave enough. Yeah. To admit it, like I, I interviewed um, a physician, Dr. David Mayer, fairly recently, recent episode of My Favorite Mistake. When he was a resident anesthesiologist, he was in the room when a surgeon, a senior surgeon, cut into the wrong side of a patient for a hernia operation. The surgeon lied to the patient and told them, oh, well, you know, it's your lucky day. You got two for the price of one. We found a hernia on the other side too, which was a complete lie and a cover-up. So there was the mistake. And then you could say there was the judgment of uh, the bad judgment mistake of lying about it. And then David Mayer, maybe similar to like thinking about your own responsibility versus the prevailing culture, David did not speak up. He went along with it. He nodded his head and told the patient, yeah, it is your lucky day. And he regrets that. But political structures being what they were, it may have really been career threatening to tell the truth in that moment. Now, to his credit, that's inspired him to a life, a career and a life of fighting to improve the culture and improve patient safety. He's now CEO. He's got a couple of jobs. He's CEO of the Patient Safety Movement Foundation. Mm-hmm. So in a way, you could call it a favorite mistake because it inspired a career's work. Right. That might not have happened if he hadn't witnessed that. He may have had just your more typical good anesthesiology career. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I think those, you know, those pressures that we tell ourselves around those mistakes or around admitting mistakes are 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 that right and they might be real right uh career you know it might be a real career limiting move but mm-hmm. it's still our choice in the end and that that that's important um the other thing i i think that's really important for organizations to to realize is you know we talk about our reflection and and that's that's part of practicing right that's is 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 not just doing the act, but, you know, looking back on it and seeing what worked and what didn't and why. Right. And, and I think, 
the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes that organizations make is they only do that. They only do that reflection around failures. Hmm. And, and so I think there's, there's two reasons that's a mistake. One is that you're, when you basically say, Hey, let's reflect the message equals you failed. Something went wrong. Something went wrong. You failed. I'd like you to reflect. That means you failed. It's code word for that. And so it, it has this negative connotation that comes along with a failure. Um, and so then nobody wants to do it because they're highlighting their own failures. Then the, right. the other problem with it is that I, you, you assume that there's more learning from what didn't work than what did work. And I think that's, that's a fallacy too, because if you're trying to develop some, some heuristics or standards or codes or, or perspectives Right? You have to balance the whole body of knowledge around what you're doing. And that has to be a combination of what worked and what didn't, not just how to avoid the one thing that didn't, but how does the thing work that we're doing, whether the thing is surgery or sales or engineering, how does, how does that field work? And you, it's a combination of what works and what doesn't. And, and quite frankly, the success is, well, we've already had the success. Let's understand why so that we can build on that and make sure we standardize it and make sure we leverage it, that knowledge. And, and so I just, I just think there's, there's more gold. There's more, more to squeeze out of some of those successes than just the failures. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think if we do a better job reflecting on, instead of just assuming that success is based on our own brilliance and we should just, you know, celebrate ourselves. Um, if, if we do a better job practicing, learning from success, then learning from failure won't seem so intolerable. Yeah. And then one other, that's a great point. And one other thing I wanted to bring up was, you know, this question of, is it okay to make mistakes? Like there's a judgment call being made there. I would frame it in terms of it is to be expected that people will make mistakes. Like to me, the, the, the lean culture, the Toyota culture component of respect for humanity or res- respect for people includes the recognition that people are imperfect, especially when we are distracted or fatigued or under mm-hmm. stress, hence the need for error proofing and good right. systems and processes that are robust against the human tendency to make mistakes. Um, and I think there's also a recognition some people in the software space or the startup community will talk about and they'll criticize, you know, failure fetish. And, you know, to me, the lesson learned, it's, it's not that mistakes are okay. I think, I think the bigger problem is if you're repeating mistakes, that's something that in a lot of cases is preventable. But one of the other lessons I've learned from the former Toyota people I've worked with is the reason you do small tests of change is because you would rather make a small mistake instead of making a big one. And I think, right. you know, there are lean startup concepts there of when do you go test and validate an idea and learn? This seems like the, this seems like a bad idea. This seems like a mistake. Learning that before you make a huge investment in the concept. Yeah. And I think that's the whole idea is learn how to de-risk making mistakes, right? And that involves making changes smaller, making changes one at a time, 
and creating safe environments to do that, that experiment. I, 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 one of my most common little speeches I would give to my, my soccer players that I coach is that I would see them going back to their favorite move, right? Their favorite, you know, they always cut off under the right foot. So then that's what they're doing all through practice or, or they're always posting up and, and using their body and, and instead of facing the player, whatever, whatever their strength is, they, they keep using it in practice. And I'm like, look, this is where, this is where you try new things, right? You're, you're playing against quality players and it doesn't matter what happens. Right? It's a practice that by design is practice by design. It's low consequence. And yeah. so this is where, you know, you like using your right foot. Great. Just use your left foot. See what happens. See what you can develop. See if you might surprise yourself because the risk is low and the potential benefit, not the automatic benefit, but the potential benefit is much greater. And, and, but it's, it's one of the reason I gave the speech so much is it is very, very hard to get across because it's like, Oh, I, I just want to, I want to stay in my comfort zone, go with what I know works and not, have that failure. And that's, yeah, that's how much we, we put a stigma around failing is that even, even when we're at a practice, kids don't want to fail. Uh-huh. Um, even though there's, there's low to no consequences. Yeah. I remember, I mean, I'm, I had this random flashback. I didn't play soccer, but I played little league baseball. And I remember at a practice, uh, I, th- we, we were practicing some situation where, Like I was on the infield and I forget the exact circumstances, but I I remember being yelled at because I threw behind the runner. I threw behind the lead runner. I don't know. Like uh, (laughs) I, I, I threw the ball. This is 35 year old memory. Uh, Long story short, I threw the ball to the wrong base and I got yelled at. Which is one way of giving feedback, you know, um, but it reinforced like, okay, well, it's better than making that mistake during a game. Right. That's why we practice. Did I like being yelled at? Eh, I guess not, but, um, you know, uh, better than, you know, so anyway, that's, that's, well, that's there's a, there's I've, a I've made plenty of mistakes uh, in, in sports. Yeah, there, there's a premise there that. The, the root cause, and we, we, we see this in all sorts of behaviors, that the root cause behind the mistake was carelessness or, or bad intentions. Yeah, or, those are or bad assumptions. Something that just requires motivation, right? Yeah. And so if that's the case, right, if, it's, if, if all it is is bad intentions, if all it is is carelessness, then yell at me. I'm going to try to avoid that experience again, and I will try to be more deliberate and careful next time. But and and I'm not going to say that that's never true because it is. There's there's plenty of um, there's plenty of mistakes out there that are that come from carelessness and bad intentions. But yeah, and those are relatively few. Yeah, well, and I'm sure you you would have fo- uh, soccer football examples, but. Um, it's funny to see in a way like professional athletes make mistakes that are based on not knowing the rules or, you know, just having this momentary lapse. There was a game this year in major league baseball where uh, the batter hit a ground ball, um, 
long story short, like there, the, the, he, well, what, what the batter did is he was running to first. He would have been the third out for the inning. He stopped and started running back toward home plate, which is a very little league thing to do. You would think, wait, why, why is he doing that? Well, he was actually really brilliant because then they were confused by that and they started like chasing him down and it allowed the run to score. And instead, like all they would have had to do was just go tag first base. Right. And he would have been out and that run wouldn't have scored. And like it's just one of these moments where it's you you think, I guess when it's an unusual situation, you take advantage of people not knowing the rules of the game, maybe as well as you did. Well, or or being so afraid of being wrong that we're willing to follow someone else's mistake. Right. Someone else makes a mistake with conviction. We're like, hey, they know what they're doing. They, 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 I must be the one that's wrong. So I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to contradict that action. I'm not going to, you know, not do that thing. I'm going to follow the crowd because I don't want to be the one guy that did make the mistake. Um, if at least if I followed the crowd, it was our mistake. <laughs> and and that's, that's a pretty powerful uh, uh psychology uh, as well. And for anyone who cares about the baseball story, it was Javi Baez of the Cubs who turned around and ran back toward home, which is totally legal. It's just like, why would you do that? Nobody why would you does do that. that. And, and, and um, so just, just, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. because You've got to watch the video and you've got to watch it a couple of times because even the announcers were really confused. And I'm sure at some point then the umpires are confused and – that's where they they stop and have the conference and say, let's make sure we're not making a mistake over how we rule. Right. Because they haven't seen that either. But then there's a, there's a different type of mistake, which like in healthcare, you would just call like a slip up. I imagine in, uh, in soccer, there are mistakes made about calling off sides. They either call it off sides when it wasn't, or they miss it when it was like, that's just more of like our eyes maybe play a trick on us or that that's a different type of mistake. Yeah. And that's, that's, I mean, that's not, I had all the information and I made a bad decision. That's, that's, I just, you know, didn't, eyes didn't work fast enough or uh, was, you know, couldn't see it quite right. Right. And this is, this is um, just like car accidents. Right. I mean, there's, there is such a thing as luck. Right. Yeah. And so every, everything you do has a percentage of success. And, you know, having a bad outcome and having a mistake are really two different things, mm-hmm. right? And so making a mistake is, is one that you wouldn't, if, if you had to look at, look at it again, you wouldn't do again, right? You would do something different. That's a mistake. Whereas about outcome is you could do all things right, right? You could live the perfect life. And then get, you know, hit by lightning or hit by a car. And mm-hmm. it's like, nothing, that's just luck, right? It's like if you live the perfect, healthy lifestyle and then this happened. Uh, mm-hmm. Or you had some genetic uh, conflict that no matter how healthy a life you live, something bad was going to happen. So right. so bad outcomes that happen uh, either against, well, I'll say against the odds, right? 90% of the time, this is the right action. And sometimes it will produce a bad outcome. Right. It's still not a mistake, but it produces a bad outcome. 
And that's different than making a mistake. And I think it's important to distinguish mm-hmm. the two because right. every bad outcome does not imply a mistake. And every good outcome does not imply the absence of a mistake. Right. So it would be so back to what you were saying about reflection. We don't want to just reflect when there was a bad outcome. You've got to look at the process and results, kind of a two-by-two matrix. If you had Mm -hmm. bad process, good results, that's an opportunity to reflect. Yep. And and I'll say, you know, I I, I try not to overuse my soccer coaching, but I'll say one of the hardest moments of my coaching is when I see a player make a really bad decision and it turns into a goal. And it probably turns into a goal because the other team happened to make a mistake at the same moment. Yeah. But what they should have done was something different. Nine times out of 10, a different decision would have produced a better outcome. And I've, you know, if I want to, if I care about teaching them, I still have to say, hey, glad you scored, but here's still what we can learn from that particular moment. And so, so, you know, we tend not to, I think we, we are sometimes willing to insert luck on bad outcomes, right? So it's like, oh, well, okay, we got a bad outcome. Maybe we're just unlucky. So let's not over-examine ourselves. Right. We're very unwilling to look at good outcomes and take away our success mm-hmm. um, when, in fact, we did make a mistake. And that, that I think, is uh, it, it's, it's important to get that balance right because otherwise we're just missing out on a, a good chunk of the learning. Yeah. And then we're just relying, then we're back to relying on luck. And that's not, that's definitely not a lean approach. Right. And, and one other thought, you know, think of healthcare. There are some post-surgical infections that might occur even if you followed all of the right process. So you might have good process, bad result. The trap is when people are not following the process, you've got bad process and you have Good result. Bad process, no infection. That reinforces, um, you know, that, well, maybe these standards aren't really that important until it catches up to you. Yep. So I like that distinction of, well, yeah, it's not, it's, it's, it's not just uh, management by results. It's management by process that leads to results. We've got to look at both, right? Yep. Got to look at both. And, and we've got to look at them over a, big enough sample size to know what, whether the changes we're making may make any sense. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that's not a data, really a data story. That's just a, you know, being systemic in your thought process yeah. story. Yeah. Well, maybe, we, you know, we had a couple of other mistake stories. Maybe we can make this for a little while, a little bit more of a recurring segment. Sure. Yeah. We can always throw out a, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, We'll uh, take the happy, uh, happy mistake of not covering our full notes and turn it into a structural change to the format or something. Well, yeah, but well, or at least, I, I think that's yeah. a great idea. And I mean, I like in, in on my blog and in social media, I'll share mistakes. It's 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 usually a more it's a more, more matter of uh, my most recent mistake as opposed to a favorite mistake, but something I've done more recently that was still a, something to learn from. One to yeah. grow on, as they One to grow say on. in the old uh, thing that played between cartoons. Sounds like a good plan. So um, 
So I guess we're ready for our closing closing question. Um, so uh, so in the theory of uh, the, the practicing uh, the mistake um, that can lead to good outcomes, right? Or we or lessons uh, lessons learned. So what's a what's a food you perhaps discovered by mistake uh, or unintended, and we're we're really surprised that you enjoyed. I mean, I can think of a food that was a surprise. It would have been a mistake to not try it. At the moment, like when I took that first bite, I was afraid it was going to be a mistake. So um, to set context, first time I went to Japan. And I like sushi. I like a lot of Japanese food. But there are some foods in Japan that are more uh, challenging to an American palate. My rule was to try everything that was offered to me or put in front of me, try it at least once. There are some of those foods like, um, like natto, the fermented soybean. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't like that. It's polarizing. Yeah. Have you, I have, have not had that one. No, yeah. I know I just, mm, like, so like, no, okay. Not for me. And there are some foods there that I mm, like, no, I wouldn't do that again. Um, uh, the orange, kind of squishy looking blob that was put in front of me is usually called uni or sea urchin. And I remember the first time I tried it, I was really expecting to not like it, but I'm glad I had that rule of tried at least once because that has honestly become one of my favorite foods in any category. And um, there's a restaurant when, when I'm in California, there's a restaurant in Torrance, California that is real close to the Honda North American headquarters and the Toyota headquarters used to be there. Uh, it's a Japanese chef and a restaurant that really focuses heavily on uni. And so that's been one of my favorite places in California. Definitely not a mistake to go there, not a mistake to eat uni. Uh, but that first time I thought it was going to be a mistake. That's, that's my story. Nice. Do, do you have a stance on sea urchin? I, I think I had it once and that night I tried so many things. It was in Japan. Um, I had so many things that I have a hard time remembering which of them I liked and which of them I didn't. And I've just never, never really gotten around to the chance. One of those things that I want to make sure I'm having it in the right restaurant, but yeah, uh, it's, it's not something I've had since. So, so I don't have a view on it, but um all right, well, and there's maybe, so many sushis I, I love that it's 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 like I'm not really searching for something else to add to my uh, my routine when I the limited chances I have to get good sushi. Yeah, well, maybe we we, we can try uni together uh, at some point. But just one other quick story: the food that I still today think was a mistake was like this was past midnight in a bar in Tokyo with some Europeans who were there as part of the study mission. And there was something on the menu board in the bar, the late night bar food snack that was labeled in English as intestine lump. Okay. I did not want to eat something called intestine lump, but it was ordered and it was put in front of me. And again, there's that rule. Um, I don't remember enjoying the intestine lump. No. Yeah. I'm not going to seek that out. I still don't know what it was exactly. And I care not to research that one. No. And, and, and there's not a lot of good food choices that do happen after midnight. So um. (laughs) drinking in a bar after midnight. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. A lot of bad caloric <clears throat> decisions or culinary decisions happen in those circumstances. Plenty of those. It's not just the calorie uh, calories of, uh, let's say, the whiskey. It's the calories of the bad decisions that follow of the whiskey. But okay. So anyway, what's your what's your food, Jamie? <laughs> so, so mine mine would have to be poutine. Um, and, uh, and poutine. And you you grew up in Michigan, so this you know this was around Michigan because Michigan's and so maybe you didn't I, have it then. But no, no, I've never had poutine. Uh, first time I had poutine was in Canada on some okay. business trip. Well, I just, I just assumed, you know, the, that being so close to Canada that you might've, it might've, you might've seen it more, but, um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I was, I was in Canada. I didn't know what I was ordering. Um, and I can't remember even if I ordered it or somebody just told me to have it, but I, I did not know what I was ordering. And if somebody would have told me what it was, I would have probably not tried it. Now this was, this was back when, you know, it didn't enter into the whole foodie culture and, right. and you, people start developing, you know, uh, artisanal poutine, <laughs> you know, yeah. it was, it was like, you know, somebody coming from Japan to America and having meatloaf, right? It was, it's not, it was just a, a, just a common food. It wasn't meant to be high, high end foodie artisanal right. or anything like that just was what it was. But, um, and again, if you would have told me what it was, I, I doubt I, I would have ever thought to try it, but I, I ordered it, didn't know what I was ordering, tried it and really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. I think the idea of I mean, what's not the fries like? almost stopped entirely for me, not, not just at that moment, but, uh, right. uh, I don't, I don't always have poutine, but I, but I, I definitely have a different appreciation of how fries can be served <laughs> as a result. There, there are gourmet poutines. Like there are one of our favorite restaurants in San Antonio is called cured and they have a poutine that has like, you know, shredded pork cheek and pickled cauliflower and fancy cheese. And Oh my God, it's amazing. But as cookie monster would say, that's sometimes food. <laughs> like you can't yes. eat that every day. No, and that's I and can't. that's uh, um, not how you find it most places you go. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think I ever had poutine in Michigan. Like I just did a quick Google search. Like I'm sure in my hometown of Lillooney, Michigan, there's some sports bar. Like well, now probably that serves poutine. I think it it, it has spread. There's there's a, a restaurant. If I ever get back there, and when we can cross the border again, uh, in Windsor. Did did you work in Windsor with one yeah, of the automakers for a yeah. while? Yep. There's a restaurant on Oulette Avenue in Windsor called Frenchie's Poutinery. <laughs> Not a sponsor, just a nope. shout out to Frenchie's Poutinery. Nice. It has good reviews. Well, uh, you know, usually when I was there, I was working, you know, long days and um, got whatever the, the, the plant cafeteria served, which, which included poutine, by the way. <laughs> But shout out to friends, especially in uh, Montreal or other parts of Quebec, because poutine, I mean, it's popular in Ontario, but I think of it for sure as a, a Quebec, Quebecois cuisine. Certainly. Okay. And that, okay. Uh, that about wraps, wraps it up for us. I ate dinner already, but you're making me hungry again with all the, uh, the poutine. <laughs> well, I don't talk. think, uh, hey, can I have some uni with a side of poutine? That would probably be 
That's probably a meal nobody's ever had before. That restaurant in Torrance does, I mean, a lot, you know, people do pasta with uni cream sauce. I bet you could do uni, they do French fries with uni salt and an uni dipping sauce. So that's not too far off. Uni so, so maybe we're halfway there. Um, Mark and Francois uni poutinerie. <laughs> that is a restaurant that will never be opened. Probably not. <laughs> yeah, slash that, whiskey bar. That could be the whiskey talking. That could be. <laughs> I did um, quick on the whiskey. I did pour the one that I had misidentified earlier, the okay. Teelings um, sherry cask, and uh, yeah, this is yeah this this is deeper and richer. It's it's cask strength, so it's a, a darker color. So now I know the difference between old Pulteney and the Teelings whiskey, but I enjoyed them both. So, Well, and I just grabbed uh, in advance because mine's too far away. I just grabbed some sure. scotch, Jura 10, um, as a, uh, as a backup. So I did pour some of that a little while ago and, uh, been, been sipping on that, which actually is not a bad compliment to ride. Um, probably a good, a good combination, but, uh, so I didn't didn't get to go go grab the bottle that I thought I was trying. So yeah. Well, good. Glad you enjoyed them. Good to drink it together. Good to talk with you. So we want to thank everyone for listening. And as a reminder, you can find all of the past episodes, not just here in whatever podcast app you're listening to or the YouTube channel that you're watching. You can also go to leanwhiskey.com and you can spell whiskey with a K-E-Y or a K-Y at the end. And those both forward to my page, uh, leanblog.org slash leanwhiskey. And the the particular page for this episode on my site will be leanblog.org slash whiskey28. That will point you to the show notes and the links. But it's also on Jamie's website. So not to hog all the web traffic. Where can people find it? Yeah, it's also at jflinch.com slash leanwhiskey. And you can see all the episodes there as well. Um, So please do, uh, you know, let's say if you're listening to this or watching on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, um, all of the main places that you might find podcasts. Yeah. And and please do rate us, uh, review us, follow us. Um, Hopefully that, that, that helps ensure you don't miss an episode we like the feedback and, and helps other people find us as well. So help helping to spread the love. So we really appreciate any, any form of love you can, you can provide to us that and in, in any of those forms. And, you know, Apple's starting this thing where like podcasts can offer paid subscriptions. And like, you know, our, our podcast is going to be free. It only costs you the time that you've spent slash wasted listening to us. Well, and, and as we've said many times, uh, we're doing this, you know, we, we certainly are doing it for the listeners, but we're also doing it for ourselves. It's just a chance for Mark and I to enjoy each other's company, learn from each other, share some stories and enjoy some whiskey. And so with that note, cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you. And that last sip. <laughs> I got a couple left.